When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That is kind of where we get into the old high school and middle school lessons of that nuance between the melting pot and mosaic. Because I think for a lot of people, there is the sentiment in Canada, like, yeah, I'm Canadian, but I'm Jamaican. And then, yeah, like I live here and whatever, but my culture and what I want to extend to the next generation is rooted in my heritage. Because I also think there's a lot of conversations around kind of the nebulousness of Canadian identity. Like, does it even exist wholesale anyways? So it's always an interesting nuance to me. My name is Melissa Houghton, and I'm a model minority. Welcome to Model Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, We uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. Basically what we're all thinking about, but probably not talking enough about. Whether you're black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, boy, girl, or anything in between. This is a show about all of you for all of us. On today's show, we are talking with Melissa Houghton. She is a storyteller of Jamaican descent based in Toronto. Another Canadian. Another Uh, Canadian. (laughs) They've taken over our podcast, Roman. (laughs) They're they're just such pleasant people. Melissa also happens to be a senior communications officer at the CBC. That's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And like us, she's also an independent podcaster. I recently discovered through a mutual friend her podcast series called So What Are You? It's like a six, seven episode limited series. And it's tackling a lot of the same type topics and theses. How do you say thesis plural uh, that we're trying to do with model minorities. So I just was like, wow, we're thinking on the same wavelength. Please come talk on model minorities. She was great. She was really great. I think one of the things that we touched upon speaking of the Canadian US thing was how, and I know I think this, like I think of the US and I think especially of recent times of the segregation that still sort of exists, racism, you know, just kind of the fact that we are this multicultural society. And I think of Canadians as not having those same issues. Like for some reason in my mind, Canadians are all, all like happy, go lucky. I do recognize that they come in different colors, but it's just like, it's almost like this different society. And she sort of, you know, talked a lot about her own experience growing up and what that was like being a black girl, a little black girl in a predominantly white school and um, really has, you know, the same exact experiences that a lot of our guests, American guests on this show have had. Yeah. It's like, there's no denying that things are really messed up in the U.S. from a race perspective, but it's we just view, oh, Canada, they're just so moderate and so pleasant. And it's like, no, we have issues. It's just they get overshadowed by the ones in America. Uh, they're, in fact, they might be a little more subtle, but 
yeah, just like even hearing what what was the little the, the story of like her as a little girl and her hair. I think it was yeah. like first grade or something. Yeah, she was in. I think it was first grade, and they were told to draw a picture of somebody based on what the teacher was telling them. So the teacher was giving them instructions and probably said, you know, draw a picture of someone who's tall or who's wearing a blue dress or whatever those instructions were. But one of the very specific instructions was that this person had a perm. And for most, I'm going to say most, look look at me, I'm doing it too, right? For Caucasian people and even Asian people too, I can speak to this. A perm for us is when you curl your hair because naturally our hair is straight. And so you permanently alter it with chemicals essentially. And you, you do that when you curl your hair for black people, when they perm their hair, it's straightening their hair because their hair is naturally curly. And so uh, Melissa drew a picture of a woman with straight hair because that person to her had a perm and the teacher pointed that out. And she said, well, your picture's wrong because a perm means curly hair and not straight hair. Yeah, it's just a difference of perspective and, you know, befriending the only other black girl and then going to high school and then, you know, the idea of sitting at the black table because that, I mean, I experienced that in high school, you know, the black kids sat at one table, the white kids sat at another table and it was like self-segregation. It just kind of happens. And us Asians, we would sit at the, for the most part, the white people table. And she's like, people could, you could integrate, but if you came over to the black people table or the black people came over to the white people table. It's like, okay, what's your agenda? What are you trying to do? Sure. Those are like a timer is what she said. Yeah. Yeah. Clicks. Those were like, you know, clicks in school. You're, this is your group. This is your crew, but very much so kind of divided by race and culture. So yeah, not even Canadians are immune to it, I guess. So the, Melissa was just super thoughtful and super forthcoming about her experience. So uh, get ready for a really good chat with our friend, Melissa. Melissa, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. So a lot of people may or may not have heard of you. You've got some pretty interesting projects out there in the podcastosphere. But <laughs> the podcastosphere. <laughs> what is it? Podcastosphere? <laughs> Atmosphere podcast universe. Catmosphere. Catmosphere. That's good. That's good. Catmosphere. Ooh. I think we just created a new word. No, but who were you before that? Can you tell us the story of something from Melissa growing up? Yes. Okay. So thinking back to the days of being young, innocent, and naive, I can remember a particular time at home. My parents wanted to have some guests over. And as is often done, you would take that time to clean the house up to be in the best possible state before you have a guest in your house. And I think as a child, I wanted to contribute, but you don't always know the best ways, but you try to imitate to a certain degree what your parents do or what you think your parents do. So it was at that time while they were cleaning that I decided to find a bottle of Johnson's baby powder. And I figured, you know what, what's the best way I can support by cleaning baby powder, fresh scent, often used on me as a child. So I figured the best way would just to be sprinkling baby powder around the perimeter of the house as a way to support this cleaning. Spoiler (laughs) alert, did not come out as intended, but I think the intent was there and that should (laughs) hopefully count for something. That came from a good place. I can tell that definitely it smells so nice. Intent is some percent of the crime. (laughs) 
the road to hell is paved with baby powder. Exactly. I think is also <laughs> name of the episode. Name of the episode. It's very funny. That reminds me of the time I used to really love. Gosh, I don't remember the name of the brand anymore, but it was this aerosol air freshener that was really big in the 80s. And I just loved, I'm sure I was getting high on the fumes and that's why I loved it as a kid, but I just really loved the way it smelled. And same thing, we had guests over and I just walked around the whole, we lived in an apartment, a whole apartment just spraying this aerosol can. And my mom was like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you making it smell nice? <laughs> getting everybody high, mom, don't you know? <laughs> Everything smells better when you're high. It does, doesn't it? I don't know. That's a different podcast. So Melissa... <laughs> Melissa, where are you from? Oh, what a loaded question. I am from the Toronto area, born in Toronto and raised. Another Canadian, another Canadian. We're everywhere, mostly in Canada, but apparently outside (laughs) of it as well. (laughs) Well, a lot of you guys are just on this podcast. Like, I think that's where all the Canadians gather. (laughs) Yes, we're over indexing specifically on this podcast. Yes. Maybe that's a whole series in and of itself. I think so. You guys are the model minorities. <laughs> and so where are you originally from? So yeah, I was born in Toronto and grew up in a suburb that's around 30 minutes in light traffic west of the city called Mississauga, which is now one of the largest cities in Canada in its own right. And I grew up in kind of the northwest part of it, which was kind of the boonies of that city as well, because it kind of bordered on some other smaller cities. So it was kind of just a typical, I suppose, suburban experience. All right. But I think what Sharon wanted to ask was the racist version of that question. And and you have a podcast that talked about that exact... What what was the name of the show first? So the name of the podcast is So What Are You? And... It is kind of a play on Sharon's exact question, which is whenever you're confronted with that, do you give the short version? Do you give the long version? What version is it that you even feel inclined to lean on when someone asks you that question? So there's the very literal sense. And I think, funnily enough, when talking to people who are not based in Canada, I realize my inclination is to go the Canadian route first. But Mm. when I'm within Canada... I would likely reference my actual heritage, which is Caribbean and Jamaican by way of So wait, you're not you're you're not an Asian female? Uh oh. You might be on the wrong podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I mean you can't see me now, so I could be, but for all intents and purposes I am not. Hey, there there are a lot of Asians in Toronto in the suburbs of Toronto. So you know. (laughs) And there is a Chinese and Asian community in Jamaica, so you know these things are not mutually exclusive. It's all fluid. It's all fluid. Yeah. But so, so Caribbean descent and how were your parents born there? When did they come over? How did they come over? Or is it like multi-generational sort of thing? Yeah. So I talk about this in the podcast and I think it was even my own reflections. I kind of developed a shorthand of that story too, but I'd really in the past couple of years began to examine that more. So my dad was born in Montego Bay, but he came here when he was four or five. So all of his formative years have been spent in Canada. And my mom was actually born in the UK in Nottingham, which is famous for Robin Hood and not having a Premier League soccer team, but I digress. And as far as I know, her family is from Jamaica as well. I say that because 
the relatives that I have are Jamaican, but have I truly verified that there's not some other stragglers out there? I have not, but for all intents and purposes, <laughs> Jamaican all around. What's so wild about that is my mother-in-law, who is Chinese, is from Jamaica, born and raised, right? And moved to Canada. And my actual mom, while she's Indian, she was an African refugee to the UK. The where you're from question is such a loaded one. I like to always just default to I'm from Alabama and just let people stew on it for a while. Exactly. And you can kind of see their facial expressions. It's it's such like a pregnant pause in that moment because you can see them doing the calculation. How much do I push? Do I want to push? And there's just that moment of space. But I think it's very fun when you just let the space be and see where they go with it. Because at a certain point, you kind of get into like a genealogical reference because they're like, okay, okay, so your parents are here now, but then before them, and then before them. And it's like, I almost feel like I need to have like a little mini digital Rolodex so I can just, maybe that could be another app, like a an offshoot <laughs> of Ancestry. You just have like a code, a QR code, and people can just scan that and get it. Oh, yeah. And they should totally tattoo that on your arm, Melissa. <laughs> yeah. No. No. <laughs> Um, this come is on. not in our that ev- space. <laughs> our evangelical listeners would not like that. Right, right. No, but I do think I've been thinking a lot about I'm going to start asking that. And next time I get asked that question, and I hate to be this guy by someone who's not Indian, right? Unless they're trying to say, oh, are your parents from Punjab or whatever, because that happens. But I want to ask a white person, oh, where were you from? Well, I'm from Cleveland. No, where are you really from? And I've I've done that a couple of times if it's like a funny last name that's clearly Germanic or Italian because I've traveled in those parts of the world. And I kind of want to flip the script on them next time someone asks me that. I should do that. I'm totally You should do that. I've done that a couple of times. And a lot of the answers I get are, I don't even know. Or it's, I'm such a mix of so many things. It's like the lineage has just changed so much or they've been in the US for so long that there's no from. Like, I'm just from here. But that's what I want for my kids. Sure, she should know loosely where her heritage is from, but she's American first, yeah. right? Or Melissa, you're Canadian first. Yeah. Right. Although I would say that is kind of where we get into the old kind of high school and middle school lessons of that nuance between the melting pot and mosaic, because I think for a lot of people, there is the sentiment in Canada, yeah, I'm Canadian, but I'm Jamaican. And then, yeah, like I live here and whatever, but my culture and what I want to extend to the next generation is rooted in my heritage and not necessarily rooted in, because I also think there's a lot of conversations around kind of the nebulousness of Canadian identity. Does it even exist wholesale anyways? So it's always an interesting nuance to me. Do you think, just to ask you as a Canadian, in America, we're dealing with a lot of shit right now. And we we have been for hundreds of years, but the water's boiling right now. This recording is beginning of June 2020. Before the shit hit the fan, I could have told you I, I saw this coming. I think a lot of people would have said that in, in America. Do you feel there's kind of that same simmer in the water in Canada or not? And if so, why or why not? I think there is that same simmer in the water. And I also think that... For particularly a lot of Black Canadians, there has been a lot of frustration in that. Actually, funnily enough, it reminds me of something I saw on Twitter, which I don't know why I can't quit Twitter, but (laughs) 
<laughs> and it was basically like, there's a sentiment that I kept seeing people tweet saying, what's it feel like Canadians to live in a house above a meth lab or something like that in, <laughs> in reference to Canada supposedly looking on as the neighbors to the South are in disarray. And I think I would like to challenge that. And I think a lot of people are working to challenge that because I think within that comes an invalidation of the experiences of Black and Indigenous folks in Canada who obviously were a distinct place. And of course, our histories are different than the United States. But at the same time, there have been injustices. There still are the same overrepresentations for incarcerated folks in which Black and Indigenous communities are overrepresented. There still are instances, I mean, just last weekend and the week before, there was a young Afro-Indigenous woman who fell to her death after an encounter with the police. And that's something that took place in the city that I live in, not too far from where I live. So I think it's a question of not necessarily using the United States as a scapegoat for people to not really look at what's happening in our own backyard, you know, it's easy to kind of throw those stones. But I think, obviously, there's just a lot to be acknowledged back home here. Yeah, no one is precious. We just tend to be an outlier that almost like drowns out. Culturally, we drown out the noise, I think sometimes. And look, I mean, your prime minister, as dreamy as he is, he was in brownface. <laughs> I think it was brownface because he is in Aladdin costume. Yes, that will haunt me, that image. And it was a pretty bad costume, but he was allowed to get away. This is I promise, nation of Canada, I'm not declaring war on you, but he was allowed to get away with it because he was a moderate leader when we do not have a moderate leader in our country. Like, you know, like, oh, you get a pass because your neighbors are crazy. And I question that. I just I question that. As much as I like his temperament and his presence on the world stage, to be very clear on the other side of the argument, I'm not a fan of cancel culture. I'm a fan of people learning and apologizing sincerely and then aggressively making right for their wrongs. But he got a pass. He totally got a pass where we're like ousting senators and governors and stuff in our country. Yeah, I would say that is where kind of the famed Canadian conservatism, if you will, comes in and that I would say, you know, compared to Americans, there is a lot more tempered responses, which is not to say that there wasn't a lot of people who were not really with it. And it was a huge discussion here. But it's true, I think, what is kind of ingrained in the fabric of Canada to a degree, which is a lot of different places. And you know what, I, w- I would also say that Toronto is a place that is kind of the bane of the existence to some other areas of the country, because there are kind of these ideas. Oh, you're the big that- city. Yeah, you know, we're elite and we're only concerned with ourselves and these busy city slickers who are rude and obnoxious. So even when I say that, I'm just like, I can really only speak as someone who's only ever lived in this area, right? And this area doesn't necessarily represent other places. I can go to the Caribbean grocery store and grab some plantain before 11am. And I probably can't do that in a lot of other places in Canada. So you've lived in Toronto your whole life? Yes, my whole life. I read a fun fact about you that you hadn't actually visited Jamaica until, was it two years ago? Yes, that is true. So my dad hadn't been back to Jamaica. He went, I think, for the last time in the 1980s, which was before I was born. And then he 
never returned since. And we hadn't really traveled as a family in a few years. So it was kind of strange in that it felt weird to put this level of importance that it was like a a pilgrimage back home, if you will, because I also don't really have any roots there for all intents and purposes. So it wasn't like I was going back to see family that I knew or was going to sit on my grandmother's porch or something. So it ended up being kind of bittersweet in that way, because A, you have to confront with what expectations do I have of this place? How much am I romanticizing it as someone who has roots here, but is not someone who really is from here in any material sense? But then also, there is a certain feeling that as much as it might sound like a little hokey or whatever, like when I stepped off the plane, I swear my skin cleared right up. And (laughs) I was like, you know what, something about this feels right. Like there's just something to be said about making that return to your homeland or the land where your people have come from. There's something about seeing it and experiencing it, but also recognizing that you know, you're still someone who is foreign, right? So it it was bittersweet. And also just, I felt odd because obviously I stayed on a resort, but it just, it almost felt like there was these ghosts around me where I'm like, somewhere around here, there are people related to me, but where are they? I don't know. So it was (laughs) an interesting, it was an interesting feeling, all things considered. And I would also say the funny thing about that is, I think I tried to obscure that fact. You know, when you kind of lie by omission, because there were all, I had so many friends who were so much more connected to home. They had relatives and they would go back every summer or their cousins would put them up on the new dance hall tracks. And I didn't have that. So I think I spent a lot of time kind of feeling like, "Eh, I feel like a fraud if I really try to claim this aggressively because am I allowed to? But ultimately, It is what it is. And I think that's kind of what I tried to explore in the podcast. Like there's no right or wrong way to revisit these things, but it's kind of just holding space for all of those complex feelings coming together at once. I can relate to that experience on so many levels. Technically, I went back to India when I was six, the obligatory take the family, parade them around and meet everyone. And so a lot of images in my brain, but I didn't remember much about it. The pictures matter more. And I didn't go back until I was like 22. I've only been back three times 18, 22, and 27. And the trip at 22, I remember coming off the plane in Delhi at midnight or whatever ungodly hour you land. And this is going to sound so weird. The smell and the heat hitting me. I don't want to say I felt like I was at home, but it was so familiar. Now, I'm guessing Mm. it was familiar because of that trip when I was six, but I didn't remember it. It didn't hit me. I didn't remember the smell or the heat or the noise of India until that moment coming off the plane. And literally and figuratively was a very warm experience immediately. But then the other thing I'll say is as the one place in the world I feel the most American is in India. Yeah. Because yes, when you kind of get a pass when you're backpacking around the world and you're of a brown or black or yellow skin and people don't immediately say American, unless you're like being a complete asshole, right? Like, (laughs) but people are trying to figure out where you're from. You get the where you're from question, but you can blend, you can play around with it. But in India, it is so obvious that I'm American to everybody. Yeah. And it's just such a weird feeling to have of, subconscious belonging, but total conscious not belonging. Yeah. 
I experienced the same thing. So same thing when I was about five or six, my parents took me back to Hong Kong. And I don't remember much about that at all. But I went back again when I was an adult. So I was probably same same age as you, Raman, 22, 23. And for me, that moment was, this is so superficial and materialistic, but I went shopping and I was in the stores and I was trying on clothes. And Melissa, you and I haven't met, but I'm like tiny Asian. I'm not so tiny anymore, but you know, literally a size zero and clothes never really fit me in the US. And I walked into a store and I tried on a dress or a pair of pants or something that usually would not fit like a glove and the pants fit me. And I was like, oh my God. At that moment, I felt like I was someplace where actually things were created for a person like me. And I had never felt that same, just kind of that same exact connection. And this is again, very superficial, but that was kind of like a very tangible moment for me of I'm amongst other people that literally have the same genetic makeup and the same body type as I do. And that wasn't something I had experienced a lot at all growing up in the US. So smells, heat, and pants, all things. Right. <laughs> and skin, and skin, and skin. Don't forget. And skin, and skin. Yes. <laughs> and skin. <laughs> so kind of fast forwarding to today, but stick, sticking around with the childhood a little bit, what did you want to be when you grew up? So there were three main things that I kind of went back and forth between. So I wanted to be an actor for a long time. My family is very much a creative kind of musical family. So that always felt kind of natural to me. And my mom would force us to watch all these classic British films. And I don't know if you've heard of Lord of the Dance, which is some Celtic dance program, but somehow we would gather around the TV to watch that. Anyways, so I want to... Is, is that a Caribbean thing? Or is no. that a Canadian thing? What is straight that? Straight UK. That's straight UK. It is literally... There was this man, his name was Michael Flatley, and he did a lot of, I want to say Celtic dancing, and somehow we had to gather around to watch that. So once again, even within that, we had the fusion of the UK culture because I think for my mom it was a lot of those elements too so we had a local British store and we would go and get the mincemeat tarts and the different candies and stuff like that Cadbury so flakes that. man you guys have them Cadbury flake is um, a solid solid thing the best candy bar in the world best candy bar in the world and texturally who can argue with it I would say very few candy bars are in that league which is why it's so exclusive. They don't want the people to have it. <laughs> it it's a conspiracy. A tinfoil chocolate bar theory. But yeah, I wanted to be an actor. I also wanted to be an architect because I just liked the idea of design and being able to do something creative with buildings or a fashion designer. There was kind of a lot of design-based and expression-based things that I wanted to be as a kid. And now I am none of those. So what did you end up doing? What do you do now? So I work right now in marketing and community engagement. I work at CBC. So that is the public broadcaster for our good nation, Canada. And did your parents have hopes and expectations for what you should have been? So that is the one thing that I would say my parents were very much laid back in that way. So so my mom actually passed away when I was a kid. So I grew up mostly with my dad. But my dad is a musician. And so as a result, he was always kind of of the philosophy of honestly, 
if you're happy and healthy and safe, I don't really want to push any expectations on you. You can kind of figure that out as you will. So I didn't feel a lot of parental pressure in that way, which I think I'm I'm grateful for. But I also, funnily enough, in that way, sometimes do wonder if there would have been a push in that sense to kind of say, hey, you wanted to be an architect, but you didn't really, you could have pursued that. I kind of think about that. Once again, all I do is relate to Twitter threads. But there was a thread that basically said, what if you were like a young black girl, and someone could have appeared to you at a time to tell you to pursue something in STEM or to pursue something in a space that you'd been interested in, but didn't have the confidence to pursue? Would you have pursued it? And that kind of hit me like a brick because I'd always been like, ah, I'm not that mathy. So I don't know if I should pursue architecture or anything like this. But sometimes I wonder if someone had just kind of come in and said, stick with it, if that would have manifest in a different way, you know, those types of reasons. I read some academic papers. I was reading way too many like child psychology things before my daughter was born. But it was literally saying kind of this fallacy of telling kids and specifically society telling girls that they're not good at math does so much damage by literally just telling someone that they don't have to be good at it or they're not predisposed to it it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, like subconsciously. It's not like STEM only. And the article was kind of biased towards that because there's this whole movement of STEM first, which I kind of disagree with. But it was saying, no, anybody can do this stuff. You just need the like subconscious competence to attack these problems, right? And kind of plow through the wall. And it just kind of really made this realization is to kind of what you kind of wished someone had pushed you a little harder. I was going to make the joke earlier, like, oh, you clearly don't have Asian parents. But I mean, and to a fault, there's so many things, the Asian parenting style that I think Sharon and I were subjected to. <laughs> but but that push that no, no, you're gonna do it. Apply yourself, just do it. And I'm not saying, but at the same time, I, my dad was an architect and didn't let me become an architect. So I'm so jealous of parents who are like, follow your creativity. <laughs> but yeah, with kids as a parent, I'm just like, how do you make sure the kid thinks like they can do anything? And if they show any inkling to anything, give them the perseverance to power through it. For sure. So is that something that you feel like you've been trying to implement as a parent or trying to kind of bring These are, in? Words. These are words, Melissa. It's easier <laughs> said than done. My kid gets frustrated and I just, I just want her to stop bugging me so I can record a podcast. No, world's worst parent. No, yes and no. It is... If you get frustrated with something, we'll try again. Pissy and say you can't do it. No, double down. It's hard. It's easier said than done is what I will say as I'm learning. It's it's one thing to read the paper and believe the philosophy. It's so much harder when you have a little crazy person. I don't know, Sharon. what, What do you think? Yeah, I think parenting is a real test of your commitment to your own commitments. <laughs> because before I had kids, I thought I'd be one type of mom. And I still think I'm a decent mom, but there are definitely moments when I know they get too much screen time or we curse too much around them, or there's, there's just all these kind of things that I do because I'm just myself and I'm actually okay with them doing certain things that maybe other people might not approve of. And, and so it makes me, me question my own, this is what I thought I was going to be like as a parent. And then this is actually what I'm doing as a parent. But I think at the end of the day, it's kind of like as long as they're healthy and happy and learning and growing and they are 
Raman always says, like, I just don't want my kid to be an asshole. I think that's bare minimum baseline. Yes, as long as our kids are not assholes and ideally they'd want to make the world a better place and make But, but that's great- not easy. Sorry, I think it's so easy for our own habits or what our society should like the examples and leadership or whatever that you see. I like to say that's the bare minimum and it should be. Yeah. But I think like there is a lot of showing and telling you have to do to make sure that doesn't happen. That's true. Because I'm Because there are a lot of assholes it, in this world. There's too many assholes in this world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's very true. I've been thinking a lot about that just to kind of pivot into race again. And you and I have talked about this too, Remen, is a lot of what we model as adults to our children is how they're going to see the world. And in I think with recent events, that becoming very clear of systemic racism, systemic injustice, all of that really starting from core beliefs and core values. And I think that's that's the part as a parent that I feel like I'm still learning a lot about because I think there are things about myself that I'm probably modeling and probably habits that I probably just kind of fall back to that are probably having a larger impact than I even realize. So it's a lot about being aware as well. So Melissa, I, mean, I want to talk about that, about you as a little black girl in Mississauga. It's such a broad question, but I don't know. When did you start to realize you were black? I mean, you probably always knew you were black, but oh, being black means these things relative to the rest of my society or it took me a while to realize I wasn't a white kid, even though I, we did Indian things and I could see my skin was brown, but to really kind of settle in. What, what was that experience like for you? I mean, some of this, you kind of look at it retroactively and wonder how much you knew. But at the same time, I can remember even in the first grade and there was this girl who was actually my neighbor and was intent on making sure I felt excluded. And I remember you know, these types of kid-based exclusionary things where it would be like, okay, well, everyone who draws with this color marker can sit with us or whatever. And at one point, there was some type of exercise where I think it was everyone was drawing their hair color. And she made a point to say, well, you have to use the black marker and not the yellow one because her hair was blonde or something like that. And I just, you kind of can't really quantify entirely what they're getting at, but then you kind of start to get a sense. So I feel like it was pretty early just based off of that experience. And then even there was another thing, and I don't know that it was necessarily, or maybe it was tied into blackness, but I remember It was maybe like the third or fourth grade and our teacher was doing some type of exercise with us and it was kind of like a guess who style thing. So basically she would say an element, we're supposed to draw a person's face. And so she would say an element and we're supposed to draw it as she said it. And ultimately, if the face that we drew matches up with the face that she was describing, then you win or whatever. Pre-screen days of children's entertainment. I can see this thing going so wrong. I know. So, I feel I'm, like this I'm is so like- excited for this story. I'm like, what's going to happen now? <laughs> it didn't go as left as it could have gone, all things considered. But it was funny because I will always remember the last description she said was for the hair. And so she said, and this person has permed hair. So I was like, okay, yeah, I know perms. That means you're straightening your hair. So I drew Uh the person with straight hair. And then a bunch of other people, like a lot of my white classmates, all drew the image with curly hair. And I was like, what? Curl with a curl. And my teacher told me, no, you're wrong. A perm in this case is 
for curls. And I said, not that I know of, but even if that's true, this is the perm that I know. And this is what we call it. But it was that I will always remember that experience of just kind of that first, not even the first, but it's just these small moments, kind of like what you mentioned, Sharon. Obviously, yours was more in a positive sense, but it really is the accumulation of these very, very tiny, tiny interactions that kind of start to form your worldview, whether you're aware or not aware. And that story always stuck with me because you're kind of looking around, what do I not know that these people know? Or why is my view of something not considered correct, even if it's true to me? Yeah. How many Black kids were whatever that first or third grade story, either one, how many black kids were there in your class? And then what was the makeup of the rest? So the thing about it is it's funny, over the years, the makeup of Mississauga has shifted quite significantly. But in that first time, and my dad always jokes about this, because he didn't want to move to Mississauga. But my mom did, because Mississauga wasn't of all the kind of suburbs of or boroughs of Toronto, Mississauga was not one that was well known for a Black community. But the neighboring suburb, Brampton, has a lot more kind of Black culture and Black residents. So in the early days of elementary school, there were not a ton. Maybe, say, in a class of 25 to 30, maybe four or five students that I can remember. And it's just like, I still remember the names of those people to this day even though I haven't seen them in, in a long time, and including one of my kind of best friends at the time named Vanessa. And we would always get in trouble for laughing together. And then kind of you look back sometimes now and you're like, mm-hmm, you know, we would get in trouble. We were giggling, but sometimes you do kind of have to think now, was there another element to it? And you can't be sure, but it is, I think that is kind of at the core of being a racialized person is you're not always sure But you have to kind of move through the world with these moments of, eh, but I can't completely disavow that it was a factor, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, as I reflect on airport screenings, but even more innocently, my older sister and I used to live in the same town. We overlapped for a few years and cannot cook Indian food like my mom. So we would go to restaurants, Indian restaurants, and we would find ourselves being seated near the front, (laughs) the front window, (laughs) right? Or flip, flip, flip the script. When I'm with brown or black friends, sometimes I get seated in the back of the restaurant at a non-Indian restaurant. And I'm not saying there's any malice, but yeah, the fact that that little seed of doubt sits in my reflection of the memory, or even in the moment, is just, it's really telling. Okay, so I'm going to ask another question. So Vanessa, I'm assuming was black, right? Yes. So in third grade, I met my then childhood best friend. And I went right up to him because he was an Indian kid I knew about, but I'd never been in his class. And I just mentally decided he was going to be my friend because he was the other brown kid in the class in a mostly white and black classroom. And is that kind of how it worked for you? Did you just kind of seek out Vanessa because she looked like you? Yeah, it's funny because it's like our names were similar and there weren't that many other black students in the class. So it's just whether you like it or not, you kind of become drawn together. And it just went on from that point since. And funnily enough, it's like people used to always get us confused. They would always call us the other name and we would always get inevitably separated because they're like, look at these two quote unquote troublemakers. So yeah, we just were kind of joined at the hip from that point. So another observation I have of my high school and junior high days, the lunchroom, all the black kids sat together. It wasn't segregation. And because we were Asians, we kind of hung out with the white people, right? And to be clear, I did hang out with one Indian kid I mentioned, another one, and sometimes the, the Chinese or the Thai people as well. But for the most part, there wasn't 
an Indian or Asian table, right? But there was the black corner in the lunchroom. And I'm not saying anything about that. I'm just observationally saying I noticed that. And it's like this clustering. And again, this is Alabama in the 80s. Did you see that same sort of thing happening in school? Or did you or did you not? Or why or why not, I guess? Oh, definitely. So in high school, I went to a Catholic high school. And it was completely, well, not completely, but for the most part, it was very segregated. So it was funny because you walked into the building. It was a fairly new school. And it had a very large kind of cathedral atrium and there was natural light streaming in. So it's like you almost had to do this runway walk down through the atrium to kind of get to the other side of the building. So you essentially had these spaces on either sides where people would just gather. So it was kind of like one section of the atrium was the black section. So you'd have the black popular people would stand near the front and all be together. And then you'd have a few Filipino people and then just like miscellaneous ethnic people who hung out with the black people. But then there was also like a large Easternish European contingent. There's a lot of Polish students. And then that was another contingent. And it was rare that the two ever should meet in the sense like people were not unfriendly. And it wasn't that people didn't talk, but it was more so when the time came, it was like an invisible force field just pulled people back to their respective spaces based based on subconscious preference right what would have happened if one day walking through the atrium you went to the other group you probably wouldn't have i wouldn't have right but what would have happened if i went and sat at the black table or you went and hung out with the filipino crew i mean i think it wasn't so there wasn't necessarily hostility i think if you had kind of enough of a footing there, if you will, you could kind of make it work, but it would still feel very strange, I think. I think you would, because I can even remember in those times when you'd have to stop by because you had to talk to someone who you did know from whichever respective group. And it was almost like as soon as you sat down, there was an invisible timer where it's like, okay, so we know you're just here to visit and deliver news. So drop that off and then go back to where you came from, if you will. So I think there is kind of that invisible and plus high school, people are just petty anyways. So I just feel there wasn't outward hostility, but there was kind of like a, oh, okay, so you're here. There must be a reason. Please tell us what it is. I almost wonder, this is me getting into like world saving mode, but look, we had forced desegregation and I think we've learned a lot of mostly good lessons from that. And this might be perceived as too much like government overreach or you know, teacher overreach. But what if we started to force those things in schools a little more? Because our own inclinations as kids are rooted in creating these invisible walls. We do it. We're all guilty of it. I did it. You did it. White people do it. And civilization is sometimes defined as a rebellion against nature. And we just described a lot of our own nature in these invisible walls and these timers and stuff. So what if? Like no kid, no kid is going to be willing to make the social thing, especially a teenager, right, of doing. But what if they, I hate to say forced to hang out, forced integration a little bit more. Man, I'm totally never going to run for office because that quote's going to be taken out of context. But it's like if you solve these things early on and you force us to, yes, understand we're different, but it's kind of like everyone's saying, if you don't have a black friend, go make one. Right. You know, like they're telling us to do this as adults. But these are patterns that have been repeated and repeated over and over again since the lunchroom. Anyway, sorry, I'm done. 
I think I solved it. I solved it. <laughs> yes. The platform soon to be released. <laughs> I gotta run for school board now. <laughs> you're gonna you're you're gonna win. You've got my vote. You've got my vote. There we go. So we've talked about differences and high school. And now I kinda wanna maybe pivot a little bit to romance and partners in your life. Are you currently with anybody or when you're dating, are you looking for, for someone of a specific background? Do you find yourself kind of being drawn to either other Jamaican people or what does that look like for you? Yeah. So at the moment, not currently dating anyone. Quarantine has put the large kibosh on that. But I would say that has also kind of evolved over the years. I think there was a period where I felt, I don't know if I'm Caribbean enough to really be out here. But then that also just didn't ring true either in terms of dating to be like, you just can't run from yourself in essence. So I would say maybe by virtue of Toronto. And I mean, obviously, I can only speak to my own experience. But I really do feel like even if I look at my friend group, it is quite diverse. So if you need someone to be on your committee for office, I can be on the brochure (laughs) with my friends. But yeah, I really don't try to kind of limit those things. At this point, I think it's more about alignment in worldview than it is really about that background. But I often do think when I have had kind of white partners in the past, There were periods where I looked back and I was, oh, yikes, I don't know how I let these comments fly because there can be elements of a lot of weird fetishization type comments where when you're not as in touch with yourself or when your self-esteem isn't as good, you're like, wow, that is so complimentary that you're telling me that this is the first Black person that you've ever dated. Now, if someone were to say that to me, the conversation would not go the same way. But I think at this point, yeah, I really don't look for limitations in terms of, okay, this is an ethnic background. And also, to be fair, I mean, that's also part of it. I'm trying to steer away from this kind of, not necessarily like a binary, but this idea of the scale of, okay, you're super connected to your culture or you're not at all. And that has to be a barometer. But even within that, I'm not someone who would be a quote unquote typical Jamaican or even someone who's still a diasporic Caribbean person, but who has stronger ties. So I think it would be kind of strange for me to impose that on someone else when I don't have those touch points, really, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I feel like the Uh, thing I realized in my dating experience, maybe you start to think about either dating someone that looks like you or whatever appeals to you. But the lesson I started to learn on the relationships that won and the ones that were great was the ones who had the similar distance or closeness to their culture or absence, right? (laughs) Yeah. I married a Chinese American and she's by makeup of like the exact same sort of parent shakeup background, a little bit of refugee status, a little bit of Asian person in a black universe, all those sort of things. But the distance, my wife and I Both don't speak our parents' mother tongue. We have enough familiarity. We know enough of the words for curse words and food and shut up kid words. (laughs) And it's that relative distance that we share is the, that's the ethnic common bond, not that we're both Asian. And I think that was always the sweet spot, finding someone who had the same relationship to culture that I did, not necessarily the same culture. Yeah, I think that's a great way to sum it up, to be honest, because it's true. You don't want to always be in a relationship in which you feel whether indirectly or directly, there's like a level of inferiority 
to some extent, where if someone is deeply connected and you're like, you know what, I just don't have this same touch point, is that going to be an issue? Or, And I think for myself, I just realized I had, and I think still I'm working through a lot of self-consciousness where I just was like, what space am I allowed to claim here? How much am I allowed to take up? So it's like, I think I was so hyper aware of being like, ah, you know, I do know this because my family does know this, but I also don't have a house in Jamaica to just run to at this moment. So I don't feel like I can take up certain amounts of space. So basically, at the end of the day, it's about trying to not get in my own way. But I think you really summed that up quite well. Oh, well, thanks. (laughs) Great. So Melissa, we've covered a lot of space more than I thought we would. And we're almost at time. And we're actually going to shift to something called speed round. Are you ready? Yeah. Right. So what is something about you that most people don't expect? That most people don't expect? I think a lot of people balk when I tell them that I'm kind of shy, because probably as a virtue of work can speak for myself. But inherently, yeah, I'm kind of a shy person. What is a book, movie, or television show with characters that you could relate to that you'd recommend? Okay, so really fresh. I am watching the current season of Insecure, which is a show created by Issa Rae based in LA about kind of two young Black women navigating their lives. And yeah, it's just extremely relatable. Right now they're kind of exploring friendship dynamics and to just see kind of like young Black women, but living their lives in the way that they they are. It really resonates with me. And my friend group chat is very lively after an episode because we all are dissecting which characters are in the wrong and in the right. <laughs> I've heard I've heard such good things about that show. You're the third person to mention that to me. Yeah. So I've got to check that out. Mm-hmm. Give it a watch. So Melissa, what is your favorite? Uh, I feel bad asking this because you told the question we ask everyone is like, what's your favorite mom dish? Yeah, I'll just ask it as it is. What's your favorite mom dish? It's terrible because I have like a dark sense of humor around it, but I know that it doesn't always translate. So I will skip the joke that I was going to make. No, make it. Come on, do (laughs) it. Do it. (laughs) No, no, it's okay. Oh my gosh. No, there's like a whole genre of when people ask mom shorthand jokes and there's a real answer that I want to give, but I normally give just the chill answer. In this case, I didn't have one handy, but... My favorite mom dish or dad dish in this case, ooh, that is tough. Oddly enough, my dad accidentally bought ground lamb once when he was trying to make a spaghetti bolognese, and it turned out to be a delicious substitution. So I would I would go with that. That sounds delicious. Lamb bolognese. Yum. Yeah, it's tasty. Yeah. What's your least favorite food? My least favorite food... I mean, okay, maybe not a food, but I'm not a raisin fan at all. I feel like raisins more often than not bring more strife than benefit to the dishes that they appear in. So I'm going to tell your friend Ida that because I'm very anti-raisin as well, but she was all about the raisins. (laughs) You guys are anti-raisin? Are you guys anti-raisin on its own? Sun-made in the box raisins? I'll eat box raisins, but not, don't put raisins in the But not in the dish. How about oatmeal raisin cookies? Not really. Sweet, no, no. All right. With sweet stuff, it's cool. But when you put raisins in, say, like a food, chicken dish, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. All right. Just, I hear that. Sorry. I can sorry. I interrupted. That. But Melissa, I'm yeah. 100% with you. You are so yeah. right. Thank you so much <laughs> for the support. No. And okay. So very Canadian. We have a dish or a dessert that's a, called a butter tart. And it's just like this 
sweet concoction in a pastry shell. But there's no worse betrayal than biting into that and having a raisin appear. It's one of top five yeah. worst feelings. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Because it's that. like the texture in that probably just doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> Thank you guys for explaining that to me. <laughs> you like raisins? <laughs> I mean, not not in everything. So I, I get it. But I've hardly ever heard that one. So <laughs> Nature's candy. <laughs> Melissa, who is someone out there that you want to interview on a podcast? Anybody? Ooh. That is a great question. Someone who I'd like to interview. Actually, I'm reading his book right now, Hanif Abdurraqib. So he has this book called They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us. And it's so funny because it's not written about the present moment. But because, as you said, America has been like this in essence, since the beginning of its formation as a nation, that so much of his writing rings so, 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 so true in this moment. And I just feel like he'd be a really interesting person to talk to. He also kind of straddles the line. He talks a lot about how he finds a lot of community in punk spaces and in hip hop spaces. And I just feel like he seems like a a fun dude. Great. And then here's the final question. What does being a model minority mean for you? I think for me, being a model minority is recognizing that there is no model. I think part of that I always balk because there's so much kind of respectability that can be attached in senses of if you ascend to this level, if you behave in this way, that's how you can demonstrate value. And I think being a model minority is recognizing that inherently you are just a valuable person by virtue of being, which sounds really idealistic, but I think in a lot of ways that is not always the case that people can feel. And I just want to underscore that inherently being who you are is enough. I like that. Yeah. I really like that. That's fantastic. Thanks. Well, Melissa, this has been a lot of fun. I didn't know what to expect because we only kind of know each other, but (laughs) I've become a fan of your work and I think you have such an interesting perspective and I just can't wait for more people to, to not just hear this episode, but kind of find you on, on the interwebs on the pod map most Fear. <laughs> the Podmosphere. Pod- Podmosphere. Pod- yeah. <laughs> Someone trademark that. Yeah. Thanks so much, Melissa. Thank you so much. This was a really great conversation. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit modmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. Marketing has a privileged place in society. And so if you work on an ad, maybe it can be 10, 15, 20 people who work on it. But that message goes out to millions and millions of people, right? And so there is like a real privilege about who's in the room, who actually says things, what's that perspective, what's that bias. And that gives us the lane to talk about these kinds of issues. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember... We're all auto minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. 
If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.